Jesus, quote, delivered us from the wrath to come, unquote. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 Jesus Christ suffered the torments of hell in his soul, that believers should not suffer them. If we are thankful when we are ransomed out of prison or delivered from fire, oh, how should we bless God to be preserved from the wrath to come? It may cause more thankfulness in us, seeing the most part go into the house of bondage, even to hell. To be of the number of those few that are delivered from it is matter of infinite thankfulness. Most, I say, go to that house of bondage when they die. Most go to hell. Quote, Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Unquote. Matthew 7, verse 13. The greatest part of the world lies in wickedness. 1 John 5, verse 19. Divide the world, says Brerwood, into 31 parts. 19 parts of it are possessed by Jews and Turks, and 7 parts by heathens so that there are but five parts of Christians, and among these Christians so many seduced papists on the one hand and so many formal Protestants on the other, that we may conclude the major part of the world goes to hell. Scripture compares the wicked to briars. Isaiah 10, verse 17. There are but few lilies in your field, but in every hedge thorns and briars. It compares them to, quote, the mire in the streets, unquote. Isaiah 10, verse 6. Few jewels are precious stones are in the street, but you cannot go a step without meeting with mire. The wicked are as common as the dirt in the street. Look at the generality of people. How many drunkards are there for one that is sober? How many adulterers for one that is chaste? How many hypocrites for one that is sincere? The devil has the harvest, and God a few gleanings only. Oh, then, such as are delivered from the house of bondage in hell have infinite cause to admire and bless God. How should the vessels of mercy run over with thankfulness? When most others are carried prisoners to hell, they are delivered from the wrath to come. How shall I know I am delivered from hell? First, those whom Christ saves from hell, he saves from sin. Quote, he shall save his people from their sins. Unquote. Matthew 1, verse 21. Has God delivered you from the power of corruption, from pride, malice, and lust? If he has delivered you from the hell of sin, he has delivered you from the hell of torment. Second, if you have got an interest in Christ and are prizing, trusting, and loving him, you are delivered from hell and damnation. Quote, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Unquote. Romans 8, verse 1. If you are in Christ, he has put the garment of his righteousness over you and hell fire can never singe it. Pliny observes, nothing will so soon quench fire as salt and blood. The salt tears of repentance and the blood of Christ will quench the fire of hell, so that it shall never kindle upon you. Section 4. The Right Understanding of the Law. Quote, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Unquote. Exodus 20, verse 3. Before I come to the commandments, I shall answer questions and lay down rules respecting the moral law. What is the difference between the moral law and the gospel? First, the law requires that we worship God as our Creator, the gospel that we worship Him in and through Christ. God in Christ is propitious. Out of Him we may see God's power, justice, and holiness. In Him we see His mercy displayed. Second, the moral law requires obedience, but gives no strength, as Pharaoh required brick, but gave no straw. But the gospel gives strength. It bestows faith on the elect. It sweetens the law. It makes us serve God with delight.
of what use is the moral law to us. It is a glass to show us our sins, that, seeing our pollution and misery, we may be forced to flee to Christ, to satisfy for former guilt, and to save from future wrath. Quote, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Unquote. Galatians 3, verse 24. But is the moral law still in force to believers? Is it not abolished to them? In some sense, it is abolished to believers. First, in respect of justification, they are not justified by their obedience to the moral law. Believers are to make great use of the moral law, but they must trust only to Christ's righteousness for justification. As Noah's dove made use of her wings to fly, but trusted to the ark for safety. If the moral law could justify, what need was there of Christ's dying? Second, the moral law is abolished to believers in respect of its curse. They are freed from its curse and condemnatory power. Quote, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Unquote. Galatians 3, verse 13. How was Christ made a curse for us? Considered as the Son of God, He was not made a curse, but as our pledge and surety, He was made a curse for us. Hebrews 7, verse 22. This curse was not upon His Godhead, but upon His manhood. It was the wrath of God lying upon him, and thus he took away from believers the curse of the law by being made a curse for them. But though the moral law be thus far abolished, it remains as a perpetual rule to believers. Though it be not their Savior, it is their guide. Though it be not foetus, a covenant of life, yet it is norma, a rule of life. Every Christian is bound to conform to it, and to write as exactly as he can after this copy. Quote, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Unquote. Romans 3, verse 31. Though a Christian is not under the condemning power of the law, yet he is under its commanding power. To love God, to reverence and obey Him, is a law which always binds and will bind in heaven. This I urge against the antinomians, who say the moral law is abrogated to believers, which, as it contradicts Scripture, so it is a key to open the door to all licentiousness. They who will not have the law to rule them shall never have the gospel to save them. Having answered these questions, I shall in the next place lay down some general rules for the right understanding of the Decalogue or Ten Commandments. These may serve to give us some light into the sense and meaning of the commandments. Rule 1. The commands and prohibitions of the moral law reach the heart. First, the commands of the moral law reach the heart. The commandments require not only outward actions but inward affections. They require not only the outward act of obedience, but the inward affection of love. Quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. Unquote. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Second, the threats and prohibitions of the moral law reach the heart. The law of God forbids not only the act of sin, but the desire and inclination. Not only does it forbid adultery, but lusting. Matthew 5, verse 28. Not only stealing, but coveting. Romans 7, verse 7. Lex humana ligat manum, lex divina compromit animam. Quote, Man's law binds the hands only, God's law binds the heart. Unquote. Rule 2. In the commandments there is a synodoki. More is intended than is spoken. First, where any duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. When we are commanded to keep the Sabbath day holy, we are forbidden to break the Sabbath. When we are commanded to live in a calling, Quote, six days shalt thou labor, unquote. we are forbidden to live idly and out of a calling. 
Second, where any sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. When we are forbidden to take God's name in vain, the contrary duty that we should reverence his name is commanded. Quote, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. Unquote. Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. Where we are forbidden to wrong our neighbor, there the contrary duty that we should do him all the good we can by vindicating his name and supplying his wants is included. Rule 3. Where any sin is forbidden in the commandment, the occasion of it is also forbidden. Where murder is forbidden, envy and rash anger are forbidden, which may occasion it. Where adultery is forbidden, all that may lead to it is forbidden, as wanton glances of the eye are coming into the company of a harlot. Quote, Come not nigh the door of her house. Unquote. Proverbs 5, verse 8. He who would be free from the plague must not come near the infected house. Under the law, the Nazarite was forbidden to drink wine, nor might he eat grapes of which the wine was made. Rule 4. In relato sub intelligentur correlatum. Where one relation is named in the commandment, there another relation is included. Where the child is named, the father is included. Where the duty of children to parents is mentioned, the duty of parents to children is also included. Where the child is commanded to honor the parent, it is implied that the parent is also commanded to instruct, to love, and to provide for the child. Rule 5. Where greater sins are forbidden, lesser sins are also forbidden. Though no sin in its own nature is little, yet one may be comparatively less than another. Where idolatry is forbidden, superstition is forbidden, or bringing any innovation into God's worship, which he has not appointed. As the sons of Aaron were forbidden to worship an idol, so to sacrifice to God with strange fire. Leviticus 10, verse 1. Mixture in sacred things is like a dash in wine, which though it gives a color, yet does but debase and adulterate it. It is highly provoking to God to bring any superstitious ceremony into his worship, which he has not prescribed. It is to tax God's wisdom, as if he were not wise enough to appoint the manner how he will be served. Rule 6. The law of God is entire. Lex est copulativa. The law is all connected. The first and second tables are knit together. Piety to God and equity to our neighbor. These two tables which God has joined together must not be put asunder. Try a moral man by the duties of the first table, piety to God, and there you will find him negligent. Try a hypocrite by the duties of the second table, equity to his neighbor, and there you will find him tardy. If he who is strict in the second table neglects the first, or he who is zealous in the first neglects the second, his heart is not right with God. The Pharisees were the highest pretenders to keeping the first table with zeal and holiness, but Christ detects their hypocrisy. Quote, Ye have omitted judgment, mercy, and faith. Unquote. Matthew 23, verse 23. They were bad in the second table. They omitted judgment, or being just in their dealings, mercy in relieving the poor, and faith, or faithfulness in their promises and contracts with men. God wrote both the tables and our obedience must set a seal to both. Rule 7. God's law forbids not only the acting of sin in our own persons, but being accessory to or having any hand in the sins of others. How, and in what sense, may we be said to partake of and have a hand in the sins of others? First, by decreeing unrighteous decrees and imposing on others that which is unlawful. 
Jeroboam made the people of Israel to sin. He was accessory to their idolatry by setting up golden calves. Though David did not in his own person kill Uriah, yet because he wrote a letter to Joab to set Uriah in the forefront of the battle, and it was done by his command, he was accessory to Uriah's death, and the murder of him was laid by the prophet to his charge. Quote, Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Unquote. 2 Samuel 12, verse 9. Second, we become accessory to the sins of others by not hindering them when it is in our power. Kinon prohibet cum protest jubet. The failure to prevent something when it lies within your power amounts to ordering it. If a master of a family see his servant break the Sabbath, or hear him swear, and does not use the power he has to suppress him, he becomes accessory to his sin. Eli, for not punishing his sons when they made the offering of the Lord to be abhorred, made himself guilty. 1 Samuel 3, verses 13 and 14. He that suffers an offender to pass unpunished makes himself an offender. Third, by counseling, abetting, or provoking others to sin. Ahithophel made himself guilty of the fact by giving counsel to Absalom to go in and defile his father's concubines. 2 Samuel 16, verse 21. He who shall tempt or solicit another to be drunk, though he himself be sober, yet being the occasion of another's sin, he is accessory to it. Quote, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him. Unquote. Habakkuk 2, verse 15. Fourth, by consenting to another's sin. Saul did not cast one stone at Stephen, yet the scripture says, quote, Saul was consenting unto his death, unquote. Acts 8, verse 1. Thus he had a hand in it. If several combined to murder a man, and should tell another of their intent, and he should give his consent to it, he would be guilty. For though his hand was not in the murder, his heart was in it. Though he did not act it, yet he approved it, and so it became his sin. Fifth, by example, vivitur exemplus. We live by example. Examples are powerful and cogent. Setting a bad example occasions another to sin, and so a person becomes accessory. If the father swears, and the child by his example learns to swear, the father is accessory to the child's sin. He taught him by his example. As there are hereditary diseases, so there are hereditary sins. Rule 8 the last rule about the commandments is that though we cannot, by our own strength, fulfill all these commandments, yet doing quod passe, what we are able, the Lord has provided encouragement for us. There is a threefold encouragement. First, that though we have not ability to obey any command, yet God has in the new covenant promised to work that in us which he requires. Quote, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Unquote. Ezekiel 36 verse 27. God commands us to love him. Ah, how weak is our love! It is like the herb that is yet only in the first degree. But God has promised to circumcise our hearts, that we may love him. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He that commands us will enable us. God commands us to turn from sin, but alas, we have not power to turn. Therefore he has promised to turn us, to put his spirit within us, and to turn the heart of stone into flesh. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 There is nothing in the command but the same is in the promise Therefore Christian be not discouraged though thou hast no strength of thine own God will give thee strength 
The iron has no power to move, but when drawn by the lodestone, it can move. Quote, Thou hast wrought all our works in us. Unquote. Isaiah 26, verse 12. Second, though we cannot exactly fulfill the moral law, yet God, for Christ's sake, will mitigate the rigor of the law and accept of something less than he requires. God in the law requires exact obedience, yet will accept of sincere obedience. He will abate something of the degree if there be truth in the inward parts. He will see the faith and pass by the failing. The gospel remits the severity of the moral law. Third, wherein our personal obedience comes short, God will be pleased to accept in us our surety. Quote, he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Unquote. Ephesians 1, verse 6. Though our obedience be imperfect, yet through Christ our surety, God looks upon it as perfect. That very service which God's law might condemn, his mercy is pleased to crown. By virtue of the blood of our mediator, having given you these rules about the commandments, I shall come next to the commandments themselves. Chapter 2, The Ten Commandments, Section 1, The First Commandment. Quote, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Unquote. Exodus 20, verse 3. Why is the commandment in the second person singular, Thou? Why does not God say, You shall have no other gods? Because the commandment concerns everyone, and God would have each one take it as spoken to him by name. Though we are forward to take privileges to ourselves, yet we are apt to shift off duties from ourselves to others. Therefore the commandment is in the second person, Thou and Thou, that everyone may know that it is spoken to him, as it were, by name. We come now to the commandment, quote, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, unquote. This may well lead the van and be set in the front of all the commandments, because it is the foundation of all true religion. The sum of this commandment is that we should sanctify God in our hearts and give him a precedence above all created beings. There are two branches of this commandment. First, that we must have one God. Second, that we must have but one are thus, first, that we must have God for our God, second, that we must have no other. First, that we must have God for our God. It is manifest that we must have a God, and, quote, who is God save the Lord, unquote. Second Samuel 22, verse 32. The Lord Jehovah, one God in three persons, is the true, living, eternal God, and Him we must have for our God. First, to have God to be our God to us is to acknowledge Him for a God. The gods of the heathen are idols. Psalm 96, verse 5, and, quote, We know that an idol is nothing, unquote, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. That is, it is nothing of deity in it. If we cry, quote, Help, O idol, unquote, an idol cannot help. The idols themselves were carried into captivity, so that an idol is nothing. Isaiah 46, verse 2. Vanity is ascribed to it. We do not therefore acknowledge it to be a God. Jeremiah 14, verse 22. But we have this God to be a God to us when, ex animo, from the heart, we acknowledge him to be God. All the people fell on their faces and said, quote, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Unquote. 1 Kings 18, verse 39. Yea, we acknowledge him to be the only God. Quote, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. Unquote. Second Kings 19, verse 15. Deity is a jewel that belongs only to his crown. Further, we acknowledge there is no God like him. 
quote, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee, unquote. 1 Kings 8, verses 22 and 23, quote, For who in heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? Unquote. Psalm 89, verse 6. In the Chaldee, it is, quote, Who among the angels? Unquote. None can do as God. He brought the world out of nothing. Quote, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Unquote. Job 26, verse 7. It makes God to be a God to us when we are persuaded in our hearts and confess with our tongues and subscribe with our hands that he is the only true God and that there is none comparable to him. Second, to have God to be a God to us is to choose him. Quote, choose you this day whom ye will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Unquote. That is, we will choose the Lord to be our God. Joshua 24 verse 15. It is one thing for the judgment to approve of God, and another for the will to choose Him. Religion is not a matter of chance, but choice. Before choosing God for our God, there must be knowledge. We must know Him before we can choose Him. Before anyone choose the person he will marry, he must have some knowledge of that person. So we must know God before we can choose Him for our God. Quote, know thou the God of thy father, unquote. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9 We must know God in His attributes, as glorious in holiness, rich in mercy, and faithful in promises. We must know Him in His Son, as the face is represented in the glass, so in Christ, as in a transparent glass, we see God's beauty and love shine forth. This knowledge must go before choosing God. Lactantius said, All the learning of the philosophers was without a head, because it wanted the knowledge of God. This choosing is an act of mature deliberation. The Christian, having viewed the superlative excellences in God, and being stricken with a holy admiration of his perfections, singles him out from all other objects to set his heart upon, and says as Jacob, quote, The Lord shall be my God, unquote. Genesis 28, verse 21. He that chooses God devotes himself to God, quote, Thy servant who is devoted to thy fear, unquote. Psalm 119, verse 38. As the vessels of the sanctuary were consecrated and set apart from common to holy uses, so he who has chosen God to be his God has dedicated himself to God and will no more be devoted to profane uses. Third, to have God to be a God to us is to enter into solemn covenant with him that he shall be our God. After choice, the marriage covenant follows. As God makes a covenant with us, quote, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David, unquote. Isaiah 55, verse 3. So we make a covenant with him, quote. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers, unquote. 2 Chronicles 15, verse 12. Quote, One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, unquote. Like soldiers that subscribe their names in the muster roll. Isaiah, Isaiah 44, verse 5. This covenant, quote, that God shall be our God, unquote, we have often renewed in the Lord's Supper, which, like a seal to a bond, binds us fast to God, and so keeps us, that we do not depart from Him. Fourth, to have God to be a God to us is to give Him adoration, which consists in reverencing Him. Quote, God is to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him, unquote. Psalm 89, verse 7. The seraphims who stood about God's throne covered their faces, 
Isaiah 6 And Elijah wrapped himself in a mantle when the Lord passed by in token of reverence. This reverence shows the high esteem we have of God's sacred majesty. Adoration consists in bowing to him or worshiping him. Quote, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Unquote. Psalm 29, verse 2. Quote, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Unquote. Nehemiah 8, verse 6. Divine worship is the peculiar honor belonging to the Godhead, which God is jealous of and will have no creature share in. Quote, My glory will I not give to another. Unquote. Isaiah 42, verse 8. Magistrates may have a civil respect or veneration, but God only should have a religious adoration. Fifth, to have God to be a God to us is to fear Him. Quote, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. Unquote. Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. This fearing God is, first, to have Him always in our eye. Quote, I have set the Lord always before me. Unquote. Psalm 16, verse 8. Quote, Mine eyes are ever towards the Lord. Unquote. Psalm 25, verse 15. He who fears God imagines that whatever he is doing, God looks on and as a judge weighs all his actions. Second, to fear God is to have such a holy awe of God upon our hearts that we dare not sin. Quote, Stand in awe and sin not. Unquote. Psalm 4, verse 4. The wicked sin and fear not. The godly fear and sin not. Quote, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Unquote. Genesis 39, verse 9. Bid me sin, and you bid me drink poison. It is saying of Anselm, quote, If hell were on one side and sin on the other, I would rather leap into hell than willingly sin against my God. Unquote. He who fears God will not sin, though it be ever so secret. Quote, Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy God. Unquote. Leviticus 19, verse 14. Suppose you should curse a deaf man, he could not hear you, or you were to lay a block in a blind man's way and cause him to fall, he could not see you do it. But the fear of God will make you forsake sins which can neither be heard nor seen by men. The fear of God destroys the fear of man. The three children feared God, and therefore they feared not the king's wrath. Daniel 3, verse 16. The greater noise drowns the less. The noise of thunder drowns the noise of a river. So, when the fear of God is supreme in the soul, it drowns all other carnal fear. It makes God to be God to us when we have a holy, filial fear of Him. Number six, to have God to be a God to us is to trust in Him. Mine eyes are unto Thee, O God the Lord, in Thee is my trust. Psalm 141, 8, The God of my rock, in Him will I trust. Second Samuel 22, 3, there is none in whom we can trust but God. All creatures are a refuge of lies. They are like the Egyptian reed, too weak to support us, but strong enough to wound us. Second Kings 18.21 It is said, The immovable is undisturbed by any commotion. God only is a sufficient foundation to build our trust upon. When we trust Him, we make Him a God to us. When we do not trust Him, we make Him an idol. Trusting in God is to rely on His power as a Creator and on His love as a Father. Trusting in God is to commit our chief treasure, our soul, to Him. 
Into thy hands I commit my spirit, Psalm 31.5. As the orphan trusts his estate with his guardian, so we trust our souls with God. Then he becomes a God to us. But how shall we know that we trust in God aright? If we trust in God aright, we shall trust Him at one time as well as another. Trust in Him at all times. Psalm 62, 8. Can we trust in Him in our straits when the fig tree does not flourish, when our earthly crutches are broken? Can we lean upon God's promise when the pipes are cut off that used to bring us comfort? Can we live upon God in whom are all our fresh springs when we have no bread to eat but the bread of carefulness? Ezekiel 12:19. When we have no water to drink but tears, as in Psalm 80, verse 5, Thou givest them tears to drink in great measure. Can we then trust in God's providence to supply us? A good Christian believes that if God feeds the ravens, he will feed his children. He lives upon God's all-sufficiency, not only for grace, but for food. He believes if God gives him heaven, he will give him daily bread. He trusts his bond. Verily thou shalt be fed. Psalm 37, 3. Can we trust God in our fears when adversaries grow high? Can we display the banner of faith? What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. Psalm 56, 3. Faith cures the trembling in heart. It gets above fear as oil swims above the water. To trust in God makes him to be a God to us. Point seven, to have God to be a God to us is to love him. In the godly, fear and love kiss each other. Point eight, to have him to be a God to us is to obey him. Upon this I shall speak more at large in the second commandment. Question, why must we cleave to the Lord as our God? Firstly, because of its equity. It is but just that we should cleave to him from whom we receive our being. Who can have a better right to us than he that gives us our breath? For it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. Psalm 100, verse 3. It is unjust, yea, ungrateful to give away our love or worship to any but God. Secondly, because of its utility, if we cleave to the Lord as our God, then he will bless us. God, even our own God, shall bless us. Psalm 67, 6. He will bless us in our estate. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy ground. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Deuteronomy 28, 4 and 5. We shall not only have our sacks full of corn, but money in the mouth of the sack. He will bless us with peace. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm 29:11. With outward peace, which is the nurse of plenty, he maketh peace in thy borders. Psalm 147:14. With inward peace, a smiling conscience, which is sweeter than the dropping of honey. God will turn all evils to our good. All things work together for good. Romans 8:28. He will make a sweet syrup of poison. Joseph's imprisonment was a means for his advancement. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Out of the bitterest drug he will distill his glory and our salvation. In short, God will be our guide to death, our comfort in death, and our reward after death. The utility of it, therefore, may make us cleave to the Lord as our God. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Psalm 144:15. Thirdly, because of its necessity, if God be not our God, he will curse our blessings. 
and God's curse blasts wherever it comes. Malachi 2, 2. If God be not our God, we have none to help us in misery. Will he help his enemies? Will God assist those who disclaim him? If we do not make God to be our God, he will make himself to be our judge. If he condemns, there is no appealing to a higher court. There is a necessity, therefore, for having God for our God, unless we intend to be eternally married to misery. Use 1. If we must have the Lord Jehovah for our one God, it condemns the atheists who have no God, the fool. Psalm 14.1 The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. There is no God he believes in or worships. Such are atheists. When Seneca reproved the emperor Nero for his impieties, Nero said, Dost thou think I believe there is any God when I do such things? The Duke of Silesia was so infatuated that he affirmed that there was neither God nor devil. We may see God in the works of his fingers. The creation is a great volume in which we may read a Godhead, and he must needs put out his own eyes that denies a God. Aristotle, though a heathen, not only acknowledged God when he cried out, Thou being of beings, have mercy on me, but he thought he that did not confess a deity was not worthy to live. They who will not believe a God shall feel him. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31 Use 2. Christians are condemned who profess to own God for their God and yet do not live as if he were their God. Firstly, they do not believe in him as a God. When they look upon their sins, they're apt to say, Can God pardon? When they look upon their needs, they say, Can God provide? Can He prepare a table in the wilderness? Secondly, they do not love Him as a God. They do not give Him the cream of their love, but are prone to love other things more than God. They say they love God, but will part with nothing for Him. Thirdly, they do not worship Him as God. They do not give Him that reverence, nor pray with that devotion as if they were praying to a God. How dead are their hearts! If not dead in sin, they are dead to duty. They pray as to a God that has eyes and sees not, ears and hears not. In hearing the word, how much distraction, and what regardless hearts have many. They're thinking of their shops and drugs. Would a king take it well at our hands if, when speaking to us, we should be playing with a feather? When God is speaking to us in his word, and our hearts are taken up with thoughts about the world, is not this playing with a feather? Oh, how should this humble most of us, that we do not make God to be a God to us. We do not believe in him, love him, worship him as God. Many heathens have worshipped false gods with more seriousness and devotion than some Christians do the true God. Oh, let us chide ourselves. Did I say chide? Let us abhor ourselves for our deadness and formality in religion, how we have professed God, and yet have not worshipped Him as God. Point two, that we must have no other God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Question, what is meant by the words before me? It means before my face, in my sight. 
Cursed be the man that maketh any graven image, and putteth it in a secret place. Deuteronomy 27.15 Some would not bow to the idol in the sight of others, but they would secretly bow to it. But though this was out of man's sight, it was not out of God's sight. Cursed therefore, says God, be he that puts the image in a secret place. Thou shalt have no other gods. Firstly, there is really no other God. Secondly, we must have no other. Firstly, there is really no other God. The Valentinians held that there were two gods, the polytheists, that there are many, the Persians worshipped the sun, the Egyptians, the ox and elephant, the Greeks, Jupiter, but there is no other than the true God. Know therefore this day, and consider it in thy heart, that the Lord, he is God in heaven above, and upon the earth beneath there is none else. Deuteronomy 4.39.4 Firstly, there is but one first cause that has being of itself, and on which all other things depend. As in the heavens the primum mobile moves all the other orbs, so God is the great mover. He gives life and motion to everything that exists. Secondly, there is but one omnipotent power. If there were two omnipotents, we must always suppose a contest between the two. That which one would do, the other being equal, would oppose and so all things would be brought into confusion. If a ship should have two pilots of equal power, one would be ever crossing the other. When one would sail, the other would cast anchor. There would be confusion, and the ship would perish. The order and harmony in the world, the constant and uniform government of all things, is a clear argument that there is but one omnipotent, one God that rules all. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 44, 6. Point two, we must have no other God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This commandment forbids first serving a false god, and not the true god, saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone thou hast brought me forth. Jeremiah 2.27 Joining a false god with a true, they feared the Lord and served their own god. 2 Kings 17.33 These are forbidden in the commandment. We must adhere to the true god and no other. God is a jealous God, and he will endure no rival. A wife cannot lawfully have two husbands at once, nor may we have two gods. Thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord is a jealous God. Exodus 34:14. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Psalms 16:4. The Lord interprets it a forsaking of him to espouse any other God. They forsook the Lord and followed other gods. Judges 2.12 God would not have his people so much as make mention of idol gods. Make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Exodus 23.13 God looks upon it as breaking the marriage covenant to go after other gods. Therefore, when Israel committed idolatry with the golden calf, God disclaimed his interest in them. Thy people have corrupted themselves, Exodus 32.7, before God called Israel his people. But when they went after other gods, now saith the Lord to Moses, they are no more my people, but thy people. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, Hosea 2.2. 2. She doesn't keep faith with me. She has stained herself with idols. Therefore I will divorce her.
She is not my wife. To go after other gods is what God cannot bear. It makes the fury rise up in his face. If thy brother, or thy son, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, thou shalt not consent unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people, Deuteronomy 13, 6, 8, and 9. Question. What is it to have other gods besides the true God? I fear upon search we have more idolaters among us than we are aware of. Firstly, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. If we trust in our riches, we make riches our God. We may take comfort but not put confidence in riches. It is a foolish thing to trust in them. They are deceitful riches, and it is foolish to trust that which will deceive us. Matthew 13:22. They have no solid consistency. They are like landscapes or golden dreams which leave the soul empty when it awakes or comes to itself. Riches are not what they promise. They promise to satisfy our desires, and they increase them. They promise to stay with us, and they take wings. They are hurtful. Riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Ecclesiastes 5.13 It is foolish to trust to that which will hurt one who would take hold of the edge of a razor to help him. They are often fuel for pride and lust. Ezekiel 28.5 Jeremiah 5.7 It is folly to trust in our riches. But how many do and make money? Their God, the rich man's wealth is his strong city, Proverbs 10:15. He makes the wedge of gold his hope, Job 31:24. God made man of the dust of the earth, and man makes a god of the dust of the earth. Money is his creator, redeemer, comforter. Money his creator, for if he has money, he thinks he has it made. His redeemer, for if he be in danger, he trusts to his money. To redeem him, his comforter, for if he be sad, money is the golden harp to drive away the evil spirit. Thus, by trusting to money, we make it a god. If we trust in the arm of flesh, we make it a god. Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm. Jeremiah 17.5 The Syrians trusted in their army, which was so numerous that it filled the country. But this arm of flesh withered. See 1 Kings 20, 27 and 29. What we make our trust, God makes our shame. The sheep run to the hedges for shelter and they lose their wool. So we have run to second causes to help us and have lost much of our golden fleece. They have not only been reeds to fail us, but thorns to prick us. We have broken our government's crutches by leaning too hard upon them. If we trust in our wisdom, we make wisdom a god. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, Jeremiah 9.23. Glorying is the height of confidence. Many a man makes an idol of his wit. He deifies himself. But how often does God take the wise in their own craftiness, Job 5.13. Ahithophel had a great wit. His counsel was as the oracle of God, but his wit brought Ahithophel to the halter, 2 Samuel 17.23. If we trust in our manners, our civility, we make it a god. Many do this. 
None can charge them with gross sin in that way. Civility is but nature refined and cultivated. A man may be washed, but not changed. His life may be civil, and yet there may be some reigning sin in his heart. The Pharisee could say, I am no adulterer, Luke 18:11, but he could not say, I am not proud. To trust to civility is to trust to a spider's web. If we trust to our duties to save us, we make duties a god. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They are fly-blown with sin, Isaiah 64, 6. Put gold in the fire and much dross comes out, so our most golden duties are mixed with infirmity. We are apt either to neglect duty or idolize duty. Use duty, but do not trust to it, for then you make it a god. Trust not to your praying and singing and hearing of sermons. They are means of salvation, but they are not saviors. If you make duties life jackets to trust to, you may sink with them to hell. If we trust in our grace, we make a god of it. Grace is but a creature. If we trust to it, we make grace an idol. Grace is imperfect, and we must not trust to that which is imperfect to save us. I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, Psalm 26, 1. David walked in his integrity, but did not trust in his integrity. I have trusted in the Lord. If we trust in our graces, we make a Christ of them. They are good gifts, good graces, but bad Christs. To love anything, secondly, more than God, is to make it a God. If we love our estate more than God, we make it a God. The young man in the gospel loved his gold better than his Savior. The world lay nearer his heart than Christ, Matthew 19:22. It is said, this gold with its glitter blinds the eyes. The covetous man is called an idolater in Ephesians 5, 5. Why so? Because he loves his estate more than God, and so makes it his God Though he does not bow down to an idol, if he worships the graven image in his coins, he is an idolater. That which has most of your heart, you make a god of. That which has most of your heart, you make a god of. If we love our pleasure more than God, we make a God of it. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. 2 Timothy 3, 4. Many let loose the reins and give themselves up to all manner of sensual delights. They idolize pleasure. They take the timbrel and the harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in mirth. Job 21, 12, and 13. I have read of a place in Africa where the people spend all their time in dancing and making merry. And have not we many who make a god of pleasure, who spend their time in going to plays and visiting bar rooms as if God had made them like the Leviathan to play in the water? Psalm 104, 26. In the country of Sardinia, there is an herb like balm that if any one eats too much of it, he will die laughing. Such an herb is pleasure. If anyone feeds immoderately on it, he will go laughing to hell. Let such as make a god of pleasure read but these two scriptures. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Ecclesiastes 7.4 How much she hath lived deliciously, so much torment give her, Revelation 18.7. 
Sugar, laid in a damp place, turns to water. So all the sugared joys and pleasures of sinners will turn to the water of tears at last. If we love our belly more than God, we make a God of our belly. Philippians 3.19, whose God is their belly? Clemens Alexandrinus writes of a fish that had its heart in its belly, an emblem of the Epicureans whose heart is in their belly. Their belly is their God, and to this God they pour drink offerings. The Lord allows what is fitting for the recruiting of nature. I will send grass that thou mayest eat and be full, Deuteronomy 11.15, but to mind nothing but the indulging of the appetite is idolatry. Whose God is their belly? What pity it is that the soul, that princely part which sways the scepter of reason and is akin to angels, should be enslaved to the brutish part, the belly. If we love a child more than God, we make a God of the child. How many are guilty in this kind? They think of their children and delight more in them than in God. They grieve more for the loss of their firstborn than for the loss of their first love. This is to make an idol of a child and to set it in God's place. Thus God is often provoked to take away our children. If we love the jewel more than him that gave it, God will take away the jewel that our love may return to him again. Use one. It reproves such as have other gods, and so renounce the true God. Firstly, such as set up idols. According to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Jeremiah 2.28 Their altars are as heaps in the furrows of the field. Hosea 12.11 Secondly, such as seek to familiar spirits. This is a sin condemned by the law of God. Deuteronomy 18.11 There shall not be found among you a consulter with familiar spirits. Ordinarily, if people have lost any of their goods, they send to wizards and soothsayers to know how they may come by them again. What is this but to make a god of the devil by consulting with him and putting their trust in him? What? Because you have lost your goods, will you lose your souls too? Second Kings 1, 6. Is it not because you think there is not a god in heaven that you ask counsel of the devil? If any be guilty... Be humbled. Used to, it sounds a retreat in our ears. Let it call us off from idolizing any creature and lead us to renounce other gods and cleave to the true God and His service. If we go away from God, we know not where to mend ourselves. Firstly, it is honorable to serve the true God. It is said to serve God is to reign it is more important and more honor to serve God than to have kings serve us. Secondly, serving the true God is delightful. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7 God often displays the banner of His love in an ordinance and pours the oil of gladness into the heart. All God's ways are pleasantness. His paths are strewed with roses. Proverbs 3.17 Serving the true God is beneficial. Men have great gain here. The hidden manna, inward peace, and a great reward to come. They that serve God shall have a kingdom when they die, and shall wear a crown made of the flowers of paradise. Luke 12.32 1 Peter 5.4 
To serve the true God is our true interest. God has twisted his glory and our salvation together. He bids us believe, and why? That we may be saved. Therefore, renouncing all others, let us cleave to the true God. Fourthly, you have covenanted to serve the true Jehovah, renouncing all others. When one has entered into covenant with his master, and the indentures are drawn and sealed, he cannot go back, but must serve out his time. We have covenanted in baptism to take the Lord for our God, renouncing all others, and renewed this covenant in the Lord's Supper. And shall we not keep our solemn vow and covenant? We cannot go away from God without the highest perjury. If any man draw back like a soldier that steals away from his colors, my soul shall have no pleasure in him, Hebrews 10.38. I will pour vials of wrath on him and make mine arrows drunk with blood. Fifthly, none ever had cause to repent of cleaving to God and his service. Some have repented that they had made a God of the world. A cardinal said, Oh, if I had served my God as I served my king, he would never have left me thus. No one ever complained of serving God. He was their comfort and their crown on their deathbed. Next time, the second commandment. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, 
that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.